Welcome to Sitka Tells Tales, a live storytelling event based in Sitka, Alaska. The theme for tonight's episode is Six Degrees of Separation, Stories of Unexpected Connection. This event was broadcasted live on KCAW in Sitka on August 17, 2021. Your host this evening is Ellen Frankenstein. I'm so excited to collaborate with Raven Radio and help share six true stories told live on the air. We'll be hearing stories of bear encounters, unexpected reunions, awkward times traveling with family, jigging, and even some jello. Our awesome lineup of tellers for six degrees of separation, stories of unexpected connections, includes Bobby Pendleton, Liz Borneman, Atman Mehta, Leah Mason, Paul Ryu, and Cindy Edwards. Now, if this was a different time, you'd actually see our tellers. We used to do this in person and hope to do it again. When the pandemic hit, we canceled live events, took a pause, and then about six months ago, adapted and took Sitka Tales Tales to the airwaves. To lift the hood for you, just in case you want to know, or perhaps you want to be a teller, and that's encouraged, the tellers and crew were on Zoom. This is live, but you don't get to see us. And we've also met once before to refine and practice stories. Now, time for some tales. Our first storyteller has lived in Alaska his whole life, a large portion of that in Southeast, mainly in Craig. Bobby's story is about the separation of a father and a son, fewer than 500 feet apart, and why the closing of that gap was so important. It's a look back at a small Alaskan adventure on Prince of Wales Island and the remembrance of a very special man. Okay, please welcome Bobby. This is about a loss of a father, but remembering an adventure we shared. Uh, my father was a former Marine. He was an outdoorsman. Uh, he was a great baseball coach, he even coached me in Little League. Uh, and this dedicated father and husband. He was in his 60s at this time. He was an avid fisherman. And he retired from 40 years of logging. But he didn't retire by his choice. He did it because the tree fell on him and crushed part of his body. He had broken his nose a few times in his life and was unabashedly larger than life character for me. But with that injury that he got after he retired, of course, uh, he, he lost the left arm, his function of his left arm, and used half a lung to survive. And he was still spry. He still pulled shrimp and crab pots by one hand on our boat using waves to get them out of the water. And he was always down to go back out in the water if, if the weather allowed it. He was a man I, I always looked up to and I idolized in so many ways. And his lack of function in his arm never kept him from getting out to fish during my childhood on Prince of Wales. Uh, and this is one of our adventures. The story commences around this time in August. And uh, I had a love for fishing, river fishing especially, and getting dropped off on, on any island around POW was something that, that my dad would begrudgingly do because he loved me. Uh, he didn't like leaving me in the wilderness and while scratching his boat up at the same time going, <laughs> going up the beach. But we geared up anyway, and he wanted to get any my lazy young teenage butt out there to spend some time with him. Uh, his one hope was to catch that big silver, and it was that time of year. You know, you get a pretty fat one if 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 you uh, you know hit the right spot. So uh, he was excited for the fight, and uh, I was just excited to get out and get on the boat and uh, get on the island. I I didn't know I just liked adventure. 
So we made our way out there. And after dropping me off, my dad decided to fish off the mouth of the creek to see if you could get a halibut uh, feeding on the dead and dying salmon um, that were packing that delta or that open mouth of the creek. Uh, he was just a few hundred feet away from me. And I was fishing off the beach there. We, he was anchored. Hooks were all the way at the bottom, trying to get a halibut. And after about an hour, I had caught a few silver decks. I was doing pretty good. Um, released some humpies. And we wanted to, you know, we wanted to smoke some later, some uh, silvers. And my dad had taught me everything I knew about the outdoors. And I knew if I had that kind of food laying around me, I had to be really, really careful uh, to keep my eye out and ear out for any predators that might be around, obviously bears. Uh, I had just finished a cast and realized something was watching me. But right then my dad screamed at me and I couldn't hear what he's saying. It was windy. He was he was out there about 500 feet, I would say. And I couldn't make out right what he was saying. And I could suddenly I heard something crackling in the branches and I whipped around and there was a black bear standing about 50 feet away from me. I swear it's six or seven feet tall. And I backed up instinctively. I was scared, but I knew what my dad taught me to do. I was like, I've probably got to swim for it. You know, I've got all these silvers around me. What do I do? But before I could muster up that courage, I could hear him taking off on the boat and coming straight towards me. He, he was able to get up on the beach in minutes and grab me. And I thanked him so much. But, you know, I was like, did you see the bear? Obviously, you saw that bear coming out of, of the woods. And he's like, I didn't. There wasn't a bear over there. there was, and he pointed. And down the beach, there was a three-year-old bear, probably a young bear, just hundreds of feet away from me at that point. And I was amazed he had saved my life. And I, I realized how serious the predicament I was in. And we pushed away at that time to get away from the bear. And we decided to fish a bit longer and calm my nerves a little bit, and try to locate the bear. I swear I'd originally seen that was coming out of the woods at me. In the short time we were there though, we saw two cubs emerge from the trees and that just even made it more harrowing. And then that mother bear came out of the trees and that was the bear that I had seen that whole time. We had gotten about 10 feet away from the shore at that time. We were fishing a little bit. And that three-year-old came and continued down the beach and just dove straight into the ocean, right near our boat. Almost maybe to get in our boat, but who knows? You never know with that. Uh, but it is one of the closest times I've ever come to death. And I can truly say without my father there and the things he's taught me, I, I wouldn't be alive. My father passed away in 2013. And it was a loss for me and something I, I won't get over. And I don't think my whole family will. will. But um, those times out on the water taught me a lot, uh, some life lessons. But uh, just one last thing I want to mention is uh, that big silver that day that we wanted to really catch, we did catch it. We caught it on the way back to Craig. Uh, it was an 18-pounder, and my dad fought it all the way with joy. So um, it's just amazing time, and, and that's my tale. Thank you, Bobby. It's a good time to talk about bears and fathers. And now for our next storyteller, Liz. She's a former world traveler turned Alaska homebody. She enjoys hiking and foraging in the woods and has found that playing bagpipe music keeps bears and people away from her good berry spots. Here she is with a tale of Celtic connections following the tune of an Irish jig from childhood dance lessons to Ireland itself. See bitch, Falcha on Sicky Tales Tales. It's us, Liz May. I'm not speaking gibberish, but in the Irish language, that means hello, everyone. 
Welcome to Sitka Tells Tales. My name is Liz. How are you doing tonight? I was a really awkward kid. Some of you listeners may be able to understand what that's like. I had a series of bad haircuts, glasses that did not fit my face, crooked teeth, and gangly arms and legs that just pulled me in every different direction. Nevertheless, my parents still chose to be seen with me in public and encouraged me to try as many activities as possible when I was a kid, mostly to keep me from going into my room and hiding out with a book and then never coming back out. One such childhood activity was Irish dancing, taught to a group of us by my friend's mother who grew up dancing herself, taught by her Irish immigrant parents. This style of dance began in Ireland with the Celts and Druids, and nowadays is commonly known around the world as river dance. For those of you who may not be familiar with river dance, let me paint you a little picture. Irish dancers dance in a way that many white people can probably relate to. When you dance, your legs flail independently of your rigid upper body. You keep your arms straight at your sides while your feet do basically all of the work. It's not really known entirely why the dance evolved this way. Some people think that it was because the movement of the dancer's upper body was offensive to God. And other people say that the dancers hid the movement of their upper bodies in response to the English suppression of Irish culture. Either way, I think it's safe to say we could probably just blame the English. Now, if we'll go back to just, you know, being an awkward teenager, nothing accentuates your awkward adolescence quite like dancing in this way. I, in addition to just being an awkward kid, couldn't keep a beat and could never reliably distinguish which dance I was supposed to do to which song. This was fine in the comfort of our little community center dance room. There we could just dance and twirl and practice for the, you know, competitions that we would eventually perform in, and those are called, a competition is called a fesh, um, and a kaylee is a community dance. But more often than not, when we weren't competing, we were actually performing in front of our middle school classmates. As you can imagine, we were an incredibly popular group of people. For larger competitions, we would put on our traditional Irish dance costumes, a dress with Celtic designs embroidered on it, tied together with a sash and a big old bedazzled Celtic pin, topped by a long curly-haired wig and a tiara. Then we'd parade through a suburban hotel ballroom like little beauty pageant dropouts, followed by the hollowed-out husks of our dance moms. While I was a completely average dancer and eventually drifted away from it to be mediocre in other high school sports, some of my friends continued dancing throughout our high school years and competed in championships around the world. I went off to college, started traveling, and had hardly given a second thought to my short time as an Irish dancer when I was accepted to graduate school in Belfast, Northern Ireland, over a decade since I had last laced up my Irish dancing shoes. Now, I know some of you are probably thinking, Liz, this is an incredibly obvious connection. A kindergartner could have connected these dots, and I will totally agree with you. But you have to understand that my brain has blocked out approximately 87% of my childhood memory to keep me from marinating constantly in adolescent shame. So at this point, any connection that I'm able to make is an unexpected one. Our first weekend as new students at the university had us rushing through orientation, campus tours, and mandatory pub socials that introduced me to my fellow classmates and life in Ireland. 
I made friends with a music major, someone who did know a tune from a tea kettle, which was my first mistake. My second mistake was agreeing to accompany them to a Kaylee for new students, which is, of course, a community dance for those of us who were new to the university. As I sat in that room with my new friends and the first notes of the fiddle sounded, I was immediately transported back into that little community center where I had danced with my childhood friends so many years ago. Somewhat sheepishly, I did admit that this wasn't my first rodeo, but I warned them that despite the years of practice, I was still very rhythmically challenged. As they say, the first step is admitting that you have a problem. I would like to tell you that in that moment, my past bubbled up to the surface, and I proceeded to twist and twirl confidently through the rows of other dancers. In reality, I tripped and stumbled right alongside everybody else. The difference now was that I had a cute haircut, straight teeth, and was only wearing my tiara ironically. In Irish dances, there are several different kinds of dances that you can perform. They include reels, light jigs, hard jigs, single jigs, and hornpipes. I really thought that I had hung up my dancing shoes for good when I moved to Alaska. But the first time I went out fishing, I realized I was not so far from Ireland after all. I had my rod and my reel, and I can catch a rockfish with a light jig and a salmon with a hard jig. Of course, we single jigs can always be found at the P-Bar on a Friday night getting hit on by a hornpipe. Here's to connections, both unexpected and otherwise, from Ireland to Sitka and back again. Plan the foil. Thank you. Thank you, Liz. I really love how you personify awkwardness and, and a little bit of shame, but keep on jigging. So you're tuned into Sitka Tells Tales, and our next storyteller is Atman. He grew up in Bombay, India, where the sea is perhaps the only commonality with Sitka. His story is one of accidents and unexpected connections from which he found the things he is most interested in today, from climate change to filmmaking. At present, he is working on a short documentary on erosion in rural Alaska under the mentorship of your very own Sitka Tells Tales host. Please welcome Atman. So, like I mentioned, I grew up in Bombay in India, which for those who don't know, uh, the latitude of Bombay is 19 degrees north. The latitude of Sitka is 57 degrees north. As it turns out to be, that's 38 degrees of separation. And I'm, I'm making a documentary on climate change in Sitka. And, and what I want to share with everyone is how I got to these interests. But I think I got to these interests from a series of accidents uh, in my life. And what I want to tell is the story of these accidents. And I think the first major and influential accident in my life was the high school I attended. I applied to my high school. I buy something uh, completely unintentionally. I only found out about its existence because it was a testing center for an exam which my brother wanted to take. And at the time, I was firing away applications for several high schools, and I found out about this one, whose application date was maybe just a couple of days, couple of days away. So I quickly put together an application without knowing what kind of school it was, what kind of educational practices it entailed, or any any other kind of relevant detail that someone might want to know. Fast forward a couple of months, and I remember being invited, fortunately, for an interview. And I remember walking into campus and meeting someone who said something along the lines of. Hi, I'm from Morocco. I'll be your guide from today. And, and for a second, I thought that I, I might I was entering the wrong place or I lost my way. But in fact, I was right. And it turned out that the high school I went to had students from over 80 countries. That was the whole mission of bringing people from, from different corners of the world together. 
and being being in that kind of atmosphere with people from places I never imagined who interpreted the world in conceptions which I which I couldn't think of before really expanded my imagination and made me a more thoughtful and conscious person. The second unexpected and accidental event in my life, which I think was majorly influential, incidentally, was also at, at my high school. In my high school, we had a system where before you decided which subject you wanted to study, someone would sit down with you and based on your future aspirations, advise you to take one subject or the other. The person who was going to guide me to take my subjects who's renowned to be something of a jerk. For instance, he was very famous for responding to complaints by saying, I can hear a sad little violin playing a sad little song for your sad little life. And quite on brand, he treated me in a very similar way and basically hammered me for being very pedestrian and prosaic for not wanting to take any art subject. So under those kinds of immense pressures, I decided to take an art. My high school only offered two art subjects, one of which was theater and the other of which was film. Then, as like now, I don't think I can act to save my life, so I decided to take film. And in deciding to take film, I think that's the story of how I decided to take film, that it was not out of any kind of prior predilection or any kind of real thoughtful inclination that I chose upon the song. I think that, that's how I began to be interested in film. I think the next most, uh, most influential accident of my life happened to be in college when I was at the University of Chicago. And I was milling around the library and I came across a series of essays by Dwight MacDonald, who was an American journalist. And Dwight MacDonald was, was narrating an incident, the, the following encounter, which I'll read, uh, between, between a Nazi death camp master and, and the Soviets. After the Second World War, when the Soviets had captured this Nazi death camp master, they asked him a series of questions, saying, did you kill people? Yes, he replied. Were some people burned alive in your camps? Yes, he replied. That happened on occasion. Did you order the deaths of these people? He said, no. The Soviets then informed the death camp master that, that the Soviet authorities were going to execute him. The death camp master at that time is said to have burst out into tears and asked the Soviets, well, why are you doing this to me? What did I do? And funnily enough, the next sentence of that essay by Dwight MacDonald was he saying that all of us might ask ourselves that question today. And I found myself asking that question to myself. Well, what did I do? And I think in the context of climate change, a fear of, ha of not having a reply, I think I got to a stage of trying to make a short documentary about climate change. Thank you, Otman. Really appreciate that. And thank you all for tuning in. We are at the halfway point of this live presentation of Sitka Tales Tales. We've heard three stories and we have three remaining. Next up is Leah. Leah has spent the last 25 years exploring the options for much what she might want to do when she grows up. She has lived in three countries, America, Australia, and now Alaska. Sitka is her happy place, and her story is about traveling with family baggage to places that no longer exist. Please welcome Leah. Hi there. I'm Leah, and I get sad and a little silly at airports. Uh, when someone says, road trip, I say, mm, maybe not. I should be a great traveler. Compared to so many people that I know, I've done a lot of it. And I started early, going from the US to Australia before I was two, bouncing back and forth over the years between parents. 
And that kind of explains the sad part. I'm always leaving someone behind when I travel. But the silly is harder to explain. I also grew up with a lot of stories about living in other countries and thinking that my mother's family were globe-trotting champions. Conversations were always sprinkled with words from other languages and comparisons with how things were done elsewhere. Family albums and picture collections have a lot of photos from places like Thailand and Japan, Italy, England, and a lot of other European countries. I made it to my late 30s with the idea of a long family line of fabulous international travelers intact. And then I said yes to chaperoning my dear mama to Sicily. I should have known better or at least gotten some kind of hint because she was suddenly nervous about going off on her own. And she's been doing this most of her life. I had never been to Europe, so I said, sure. And with that began a year of planning. I started paying attention to it about eight months later, which is when I discovered that we weren't going to Sicily anymore. She wanted to show me some of the things she'd seen on all of her travels. So the final itinerary was for Leah's first trip to Europe, and it was five weeks long. I was kind of nervous about the whole thing because it had suddenly become all about me. And because I know that traveling brings out weird things in me, and I, I too prefer to be alone when that's going on. So. I said that I get sad at airports, but I also get silly, not drunk and disorderly, just kind of unfocused. Um, yeah, weird stuff happens. So some of you may not ever have traveled without taking your shoes and belts off and emptying your water bottles, but I'm old enough to remember when you could check in five minutes after the baggage had been loaded and still get on the plane. My mother, on the other hand, is old enough to remember when most people traveled by boat if they traveled internationally. You had to have multiple changes of clothes just for the journey. Seasons could change en route. And this might explain why she starts her preparations weeks, if not months before she goes anywhere. We get along pretty well generally. And our trip, once we get there, uh, gets off to a good start. Uh, we realized that we hadn't been on a plane together since the early 1980s. We reminisced about that last hellish 15 or 16 hour trip stuck in the smoking section on a Pan Am flight from Los Angeles to Sydney. And how awkward it used to be trying to watch the movie on a tiny big screen at the front of the cabin, especially when you're like eight and very short. That was really terrible. Then we spent quite a bit of time, ironically, trying to sync up our individual screens so that we could watch the same movie at the same time. 18 hours later, we arrive hot and dusty Rome, and we have three days to recover. Thankfully, there are no more planes for more than a week after our stay in Rome, and our next stops are Florence and Venice, and we're going to both of those by train. No security, no juggling luggage, passports, passes, no turning up hours before departure, because that's the thing she likes to do, apparently. Florence and Venice are amazingly old. They're really confusing to navigate, but they're great to walk around once you figure out how to stop walking back to the center of town without trying to. I was completely charmed, and my personal tour guide was very happy with the outcome of her planning. The trouble begins the night before we leave Italy on our next plane trip from Venice to Barcelona in Spain. I have a long history of forgetting something 
just as we're about to leave and causing chaos. It's been something I've been doing since I was like four. And there are shoes, my shoes, you know, still, still probably at the bottom of pools in Mexico, um, which is, you know, where we throw our towel in and just leave without them. I forgot my newly acquired coat in a restaurant across the courtyard from a hotel in Venice. And it's closed when I realized that I don't have the coat. And it's not going to open again until after we board a plane. Instead of getting to the airport at ridiculous o'clock, as my mother seems to prefer, we spend the morning running around, writing and leaving notes under doors, getting email addresses and negotiating with our hosts to get the coat sent on to one of our next destinations. Grumpy references and gnashing of teeth accompany all of this and constant references to my childhood of causing chaos by leaving clothes behind. None of this is nailed down before we leave the ground, but thank goddess we have the internet and airmail. I am looking forward to Barcelona, bring it on. We see our first 3D printer making building blocks in concrete. We enter a stone forest masquerading as a church and utter the words, oh my God, without a trace of irony. If you ever go to Barcelona, you have to go to the Sagrada Familia. I alternate between marveling at things and suffocating in clouds of obnoxious Spanish cigarette smoke. And on our last night, I dropped my clothes off at a cleaner. Can you see where this is going? They assure me that they will be done at least an hour before we need to leave for Madrid the next day. But they aren't open when I turn up. They still aren't open when I go back again half an hour later. And back at the hostel, panic is starting to set in. We check out and lurk around the shop front for another 10 minutes before they finally open up. But this is cutting it way too close for my mother, who is again getting grumpy and muttering about my childhood shoe leaving antics. It happens. We get there. I have clean clothes and we're on our way. Cue the pickpockets. We make it to the train station, but we get pickpocketed on our way through the turnstiles. And we get to Madrid completely demoralized. My mother cancels her cards, organizes replacements and stays in bed for 24 hours, still muttering about me in the shoes. We amused ourselves there, but Madrid's a government town and I think it's really drab compared to Barcelona. So we were more than ready to be in Paris. But first we had to negotiate about what time we needed to be at the airport. And I'm beginning to see that it's not possible for my mother to be at the airport too early. If the departure time is 9 a.m. and the suggested check-in is 7 a.m., then she would like to get there at 6.30 a.m. Every time we discuss it, after that initial conversation, she wants to be there even earlier. How about 5.30 a.m.? And I have begun to develop strategies for drawing the line at being at the airport more than three hours ahead of time. Not losing anything, this time, I have hours to observe that she is really grumpy, even when we're at the airport way ahead of time. And as we board the plane to Paris, my image of my mother as a dashing, confident traveler is really starting to dissolve. In Paris, I also realized that most of our old travel roles have reversed. On our previous journey together, back in the bad old days of air travel, I was a child and she was in charge of everything. Now, She's still in charge of the money because I tend to lose money. I am now the snack and mood manager. I carry bananas for her low blood sugar moments. I keep track of lunchtime and incorporate sitting activities into the schedule. I'm the luggage lugger 
I'm the navigator of unknown public transport systems. I'm also the person who now wants to stay longer in the museum. And she's the person whose legs get tired and the person who gets us thrown out of the church. She's such a child now. And our last destination is a train trip. So thankfully we can take the train from Paris to London. And there's a lot of family stuff about London. This is just one of the many journeys that my mother has made there. It's where her mother was born and where all of my great grandparents on her side of the family are born. I haven't met any of these people, so they're kind of fuzzy. We discuss what we wanna see and do. And for me, it's visiting places that have been the settings for the fictional events that I read about. And she's happy to go along with that because she's read most of the same books and yeah, the people she used to visit friends and relatives are now dead and gone. And I say, that's funny because, you know, those family connections are probably fuzzier and less real for me than the characters and figures in those books that we've read. Thank you for taking us on a wonderful journey and sharing your vulnerability and your honesty of traveling with your mother. We have two stories left. The next one coming from Paul, who is called Two Very Separated Coasts Home at Different Parts of His Life. Hit it, Paul. My story starts at a little town in Down East Maine called Booth Bay Harbor. And uh, Booth Bay is kind of a lot like Sitka. It's a tourist spot right on the coast and people travel from far around the world to visit there. It's a big port for tall ships and and uh, yeah, it's just generally kind of quintessential coastal Maine as, as people tend to picture it, postcards and whatnot. So uh, this is just literally a few weeks after I graduated from high school and I took a job working at a sailing resort. And this resort was the type of place where families would come up and rent a cottage and sort of hang out and eat lobster and go out boating every day. And it was a really neat spot. And uh, it was staffed by, you know, mostly college age kids. There was like 20, 20 males and 20 females and we all lived there. Um, so it was a little bit like a co-ed summer camp meets reality bites with a little bit of animal house maybe thrown in there. And uh, it was a really wonderful summer. Got to explore the coast. Um, you know, it was right there by Acadia National Park. And, and it's sort of that magic time, you know, right after high school, where you're coming into adulthood and you get to, to start making friends and connections and stuff. And so that was a really neat summer. And uh, I made a lot of friends. And, uh, you know, when, when August came around, we sort of boarded the place up and Everyone was heading their separate ways. Uh, most of the people going to school, mostly in New England, University of Maine, and around Vermont and Massachusetts. And a couple of people going back to work, wherever their hometown was. It was a pair that got married. Uh, my friend Joe that had just graduated from down the street in Brunswick was headed off to, uh, to Turkey to go backpacking. And there was folks just doing stuff. And this was before the internet, before social media. So it was kind of like the get their parents address and, and phone number and maybe throw them a card or something or call their parents, find out where they were a year or two later sort of thing. So fall came and I went along my way and went to school for a while. And um, that really wasn't jiving for me. 
So I started thinking about what was next and I turned my eyes west and I'd always wanted to come out to Alaska. So I ended up making my way out to Sitka. I ended up choosing Sitka because I went to Sheldon Jackson College and you know, you hear now about people taking gap years. Mine was closer to a gap decade. I didn't really know what I was doing. My compass was all over the place. So I, you know, I met some friends and, you know, wandered down to California and and got to, you know, hang out with people doing falconry and doing birds of prey stuff and got to go up in the Sierras and ended up working in aquaculture and Puget Sound a little bit. And, you know, I had a healthy sense of irreverence for that age and, you know, and a little bit of a spirit of adventure. Certainly there's some tellers that were all over here. So I'm a little jealous, but uh, living vicariously through the story. So that's great. So eventually I made my way back and came back to Alaska, came back to Sitka and, and worked some and putted around in fishing. And then one summer I took my first job working as a deckhand for the full summer. And, uh, Many years have gone by now, and we're fishing over Hidden Falls, and the skipper says, we're going to go to Petersburg and uh, haul the boat out, pressure wash it, change the zinc, paint the bottom. I was like, okay, great. I've never been to Petersburg. So we cruise into Petersburg, and we tie up, and, you know, we're walking uptown, and we literally, like, get to the top of the dock and walk around the first corner, and here comes a bunch of 20-somethings all dressed as, like, Vikings and Valkyries and, like, howling at the moon and just, like, and, and the skipper who had lived there before, I still don't know if he knew it was Mayfest and just played dumb or if he was like, and setting me up. But I mean, he looked at, he's like, oh man, we landed right in the little Norway festival. Now that I look back, I think he might've known and just played it down. But So that turned into uh, quite an adventure. If, if you've ever participated in, in the little Norway festival, you know, that's a good time. So, you know, we got our stuff done on the grid and we made friends in Petersburg and I took a little break from that. And one day I'm up at the, the library, the public library at Petersburg and, and I'm going through the stacks and this guy walks by and he, he just looks really familiar to me. And he makes it a step or two and he turns around and looks me right in the eye and says, hi, Paul. And it was one of my friends from Booth Bay Harbor from years before. And as it turns out, his path had led him to Petersburg and he made it his home. So every once in a while, like on Saturday morning, if I'm listening to the news, if Coast Alaska features KFSK, I get to hear my friend tell me the news from Petersburg. So we kind of bookended our life of adventures and landed back in the same spot on different coasts with absolutely no coordination whatsoever. So pretty neat. I kind of consider him one of my little soul brothers. Thanks for listening. Have a great night. Thank you, Paul, reminding us how wonderful it is to crisscross with people in our lives. Our last story for the night is from Cindy. Cindy came to Baranoff Island in 1999, immediately fell in love with Sitka and knew she would live here. For six years, she came up for summers and sometimes winters, picking up any possible job, packing up her dog, bike, tent, and belongings. She moved here full-time with $500, no plans, no place to live in the winter of 1996, just a deep belief that Sitka was home. She's worked in the school system. She's created and run outpatient treatment program. She's helped revitalize the Haines Center. And she loves living in the magical outdoor playground that Sitka offers. She's extremely grateful for the connection to the land, the ocean, wildlife, and the people of Southeast Alaska. 
is so cool that we all have stories of unexpected connections. And it has been really fun to hear you guys tonight. And I know that there are tons of people listening that also have great stories of unexpected connections. And mine is a tale that's about a bowl of jello. And it's not that I'm a huge jello eater, it's just that I really am fascinated with jello. And honestly, I can only think of like one time in my adult life that I've actually eaten jello. But as a kid growing up in Ohio, we had lots of potlucks and there was lots of jello there. And it was the kind of jello, like all different colors, different shapes. It would show up like mysterious. It would have like suspended fruit cocktail in it. And there'd be all different adaptable things like shredded carrots and, and onions. And it could hold like pretzels. And I just, I was so super impressed with all the things that Jell-O could do. And then I left Ohio and I left the Jell-O potlucks. And um, I moved here when I was 29 years old. And I felt so free at the time. I was so happy and complete. I was like full up. And I quickly got a great job. I loved it. I had my dog with me. I had amazing girlfriends. I bought a skiff. And I was super duper glad to be single. But the only problem was in Sitka, we did not have a real theater in Sitka. And so my girlfriends were like, we have to go see a real movie in a theater. And so they booked tickets on the ferry to Juneau, 12 hours. They rented a car. They got a hotel room just to see a movie in a theater. And they really, really wanted me to go. They're like, you have to go. And I'm thinking like, no way, because we just had July 4th. My boss would kill me if I asked for more time off. There's no way I'm going. But they were so relentless. My girlfriend's like, you are going. So I waited the night before the trip, the responsible thing, and asked my boss for time off. And he said, sure. And I'm like, what? I was so stoked. So we went and the trip was an absolute blast and we laughed nonstop. It was one of those trips where like your belly hurts and your face hurts from laughing and you're eating and laughing and you don't know what's going to explode or like what's going to come out where it was one of those trips. And then we get back to Sitka. We finally tie up the, the ferry. It's, it's tying up there and um, I'm all ready to disembark. I've got my backpack on my girlfriends. I'm waiting for him. I look over and I see this traveler guy and he's reading a Sitka guidebook. So I'm like, hey, how long are you going to be in Sitka? And he says, I'm going to be here a week. And so I'm like, oh, let me tell you what to do. I'm telling him all the hikes to take. I'm telling him all the little tricks of the trade. And then I'm thinking like, hey, we'll give you a ride into town if you want. And so all is well. And my girlfriend's catch up with me. And then I'm thinking like, who, hello, invites this guy on a girlfriend trip. Even just the trip back to town is just so random traveling, man. I know that thing about, no. So I promptly unoffer him a ride. And I think, oh, well, I'm never going to see that guy again. Tra-la-la, next day at work. Lo and behold, that same traveler guy comes bounding down the hall towards my office with the husband of my coworker. And I'm like, what? And it turns out the only two people he knows in Alaska, my coworker and her husband. So, all right, unexpected connection is giving him a little cred, right? So we make plans to go bike and hike to Medivici Lake after work. And I find myself at the gate with this guy at the end of the other road system. And I'm thinking, seriously, who is this guy? I'm about to head out into the middle of nowhere with him. And so I ask him, are you a serial killer? And he says, no. 
And I'm thinking, excellent answer. And then he follows up with, well, at least that's what they taught me to say when I was in serial killer school. Now I'm thinking, quick wit, check. So we get out to Medivici Lake and I thought, wouldn't it be fun and entertaining if at the beginning of our week of getting to know each other, we start with like ridiculously probing questions. And then at the end of the week, we end with trite questions like, hey, where are you from? You got any siblings? So he agrees. He thinks that's a great idea. So I was a substance abuse counselor at the time. And I thought, I'll start with one of my assessment questions. So I asked him, have you ever had unprotected one night stand with someone while under the influence of drugs and alcohol? And he says, no. And he says it quickly, but like not too quickly, you know? So it's like believable. And so then he turned it around on me and I say like, no. And that week, let me tell you, was incredible. We had so much fun and it was like too incredible. So I thought, okay, I'm never gonna see this guy again. There is no way. It was just too incredible. He must have a woman in every port. I don't know. At the end of the week, 2 a.m., I drive him out to the ferry terminal. I drop him off. And I secretly, as sadly, am thinking, ah, I'm never going to see this guy again. But soon after that, I get a package in the mail. And there is a box of Cheerios with a plastic fork stabbed into the middle of it. And there's this little sweet note. And it says, hey, la, la, la. And it's signed your serial killer, C-E-R-E-A-L. And that is when I thought I might see this guy again. Well, we've been happily, happily married for 21 and a half years. And when I asked Brant, when did you suspect that I might be the one? He said, remember that time on the ferry when I saw you laughing so hard with all your girlfriends, you blew green jello out your nose. So many unexpected connections, right? Like the audacity of me asking my boss for more time off, traveling 12 hours to see a movie in a theater, finding Brandt on this ferry. I mean, it was totally spontaneous that he was even on that ferry. The only two people in Alaska that he knew happened to be my coworker and spouse. And then like the last possible five minutes that I could have met this guy when we were tying up the ferry, that was the time we talked. And I don't know, sometimes I just wonder like what my life would look like if the one time I ate Jello as an adult hadn't happened across the dining room from the one guy on the planet Earth who would find that intriguing. And I don't know, seriously, the chances are so slim. But the fact is the catalyst for the most brilliant and influential decision of my entire life began in the connective tissue of a jiggling bowl of green Jello in Southeast Alaska. Whoa. Thank you, Cindy. Okay. <laughs> I want to say that I had to cap the show with your story because you're actually the source of the theme of six degrees of separation, stories of unexpected connection, because you are one of the people that has this incredible way of connecting and bringing people together. And thank you to all <laughs> our storytellers, and Raven Radio for bringing this event to life on the air. I want to also thank the Sitka Soup and the Sitka Daily Sentinel for helping us get the word out. And to our awesome timer and story coach helper, Rachel Thompson, I want to let you know we are open for themes and ideas and feedback. Let us know if you want to tell a story and look for the Sitka Tells Tales page and updates on Facebook 
and on artchangeinc.org. And soon you'll be able to find us in the podcast sphere. So again, thank you to all of you who tuned in on KCAW Raven Radio. And if you see one of our lovely tellers on the street or in the grocery store, be sure to let them know you heard their story and even mention a line you heard that resonated, maybe a story about Jello or made you laugh or think of your own story. And that's it. Have a good night. Stay dry. Thank you for joining us for Sitka Tells Tales, a live storytelling event based in Sitka, Alaska. Thank you to our storytellers today, Bobby Pendleton, Liz Borneman, Atman Mehta, Leah Mason, Paul Ryu, and Cindy Edwards, as well as a big thank you to our broadcast partner, Raven Radio. To find more about Sitka Tells Tales and to hear other episodes of the podcast, you can visit artchangeinc.org. Your host this evening was Ellen Frankenstein. This episode of Sitka Tells Tales was made possible with funding from the Sitka Alaska Permanent Charitable Trust and by the Rasmussen Foundation, administered by the Alaska State Council on the Arts. 